This is They Create Worlds, episode 109, Adventuring with Lucas Arts, part 2. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we thought we were done adventuring, but really, we love adventuring too much. So, we are going off on a grand new adventure, the downfall of LucasArts. <laughs> Not exactly, really. But we will be talking about, we've kind of gotten LucasArts adventure games, or still LucasFilm games at the point we stopped, up to kind of the beginning of their high point with The Secret of Monkey Island. Now we're going to get through kind of the golden age, the true golden age of LucasArts Adventures, which actually was a, a very brief period of time. We're talking about less than a decade here. And then bring it to its ignominious end, as you said. But we won't really be covering the fall of LucasArts, may it rest in peace, because someday we will do one or three or 20 LucasArts episodes. But will we do as many LucasArts episodes as we've done Atari episodes? Oh, God, no. <laughs> that would be overkill by that point we'd be saying and this is what ron gilbert had for lunch on thursdays i mean no no it's a fascinating company but we're not going to give it the atari treatment no so if anyone really wanted to know what ron gilbert had for lunch you're gonna have to ask him he blogs he might tell you who knows who <laughs> knows all right. So uh, just as a recap, in episode one, of course, of this uh, two-parter, we talked about Ron Gilbert and how Ron Gilbert was very unhappy with the state of adventure games, particularly the Sierra Mold, wanted to do something different, something less arbitrary, something quite frankly just better designed for the genre. So he started doing the Maniac Mansion thing, uh, with Chip Morningstar's help, he came up with the idea of also doing this scripting language that you could uh, do everything on a high-powered Unix workstation and then render it down onto the lowly Commodore 64, or as is about to become much more common, the IBM PC. So now we've kind of got this game philosophy, we've got this game design system, everything is kind of in place for LucasArts to really, really redefine this genre. And we get The Secret of Monkey Island, which we already talked about, which is just a fantastic game. I mean, this is easily one of the greatest adventure games ever made, in my personal opinion. Love it. Love it to death. It's been remade at least twice. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the things that really, really makes it so good is the wit behind it. And I'm not just talking humor here. I'm talking wit. A lot of that has to do not just with Ron Gilbert and what he was doing, but it was due to the fact that at the same time, this adventure game thing is really starting to grow within the company, which we talked about how after Maniac Mansion, they're like, yes, more of those, please. They're starting to bring in outside talent. And in fact, the insult sword fighting in Monkey Island, which is so famous that we briefly touched on last time, was actually written by Orson Scott Card. That Orson Scott Card. The famous author kind of Orson Scott Card. Exactly. The one that wrote Ender's Game, Orson Scott Card. That's the one, because he was a huge computer game fan and he even did computer game reviews for magazines. He did that, but then in addition to that, 
There were also two other young, hungry guys that were brought in on this game. Those are two names that are very important, Tim Schaefer and Dave Grossman. Monkey Island was kind of collaboration. Gilbert was the lead. Gilbert was the one leading the design, and he designed large portions of the game himself, but he also gave areas of the game, both dialogue and puzzles, to Schaefer and Grossman to do as well, and the three of them would kind of riff off things and decide what to put in the game. This was not accidental because LucasArts, Lucasfilm Games, wanted to start expanding the genre broadly, and so they began actively looking for programmers that also seem to have good design sensibility and good writing sensibility. They were paying attention to the writing, too, and started bringing them into the company. And they wouldn't just hire them and be like, here, you go, make adventure game. They actually set up something called Scum University, where they would actually sit these guys down and be like, this is the scum engine. Here's a sample of a room of scum engine things. Look at the, you can manipulate this, you can manipulate that. This thing does this, this thing does that. This is how scum games work. Go forth, make little test scum games, not meant for release to the outside. Just make yourself a simple little scum game. They're really internally starting to develop talent and codify talent. And no one really exemplifies this more than Tim Schafer deliberately left him till this episode, even though he worked on the first Monkey Island, which we talked about last time, just because I felt it made a lot of sense to just kind of tie that all together in the second episode, because, of course, Ron Gilbert actually leaves the company in 1992. He goes off to found his own company, Humongous Entertainment. So with Ron Gilbert gone, there are lots of people that take up the mantle, lots of people that make some great games, but I think Tim Schafer is clearly the most creative of those that take up the mantle after him. And his background is so very unusual and just exemplifies the kind of thing that Lucasfilm Games slash LucasArts was going for in this period. He was a computer science guy. He was studying computer science at UC Berkeley. But he became very interested during that period of time in writing as well. And that's kind of an unusual combination. I mean, obviously not a unique combination or anything, but left brain, right brain, analytical, creative. It's like technical people might go be technical writers and, you know, tell you how to put the thing in the other thing. But being a creative writer and being a technically accomplished guy, that's a unique skill set. So he started moonlighting by doing his own little writing projects and whatnot while he was doing his regular database programming by day. And he was trying to attract attention from a company like an Atari, like a big company, that might actually pay him to do this stuff. Because he was a big game fan going way back. I mean, he played arcade games during the, the golden age of arcade games. He played all the classics then. He was very interested in that. He was very interested in graphics. And then he was also very interested in writing. He was into adventure games from an early age because he played Atari's adventure on the Atari 2600. He had a 2600 in his home. So all of this is kind of gelling in his experience. And then he saw an ad for Lucasfilm Games, as it still was at the time, at the Career Service Center at Berkeley. had been rejected by Atari and Hewlett-Packard and a lot of big companies. And so he saw this ad from Lucasfilm Games for a programmer that could also write. Right up his alley. Exactly. 
But that's so unusual, and it goes to the heart of what Lucasfilm Games was trying to do at this time that was so different a path from what a lot of the American industry was doing. There was that kind of specialization in Japan by this time. And even in the U.S., there was some specialization. Sometimes writers were brought in to spice up stories. But the idea that you wanted a programmer that wasn't just also a good game designer, but was also a good writer, that's at that time even more unusual. And it just goes to show the ways that Lucasfilm Games was trying to elevate the adventure genre in the wake of the success of Maniac Mansion. So he goes in and it's kind of funny. He has what he considers, and I'm sure he embellishes this a little bit because he's a funny guy, but his first interview is with David Fox. We talked about David Fox briefly in the last episode. He was a huge, huge Lucasfilm Games fan. He had played the old quirky games, the stuff like Fractalus and Coronis Rift, the stuff that was kind of interesting and kind of cutting edge, but not quite commercially there yet, the experimental stuff they were doing in the first couple of years. And he loved it. So he's talking to David Fox and he says to him, I love their games. It's like, and my absolute favorite was Ball Blaster. Well, you see, one thing we didn't talk about last time, because this isn't a Lucasfilm Games episode, is the first two games that the company made, which we did talk about last time, Rescue on Fractalus and Ball Blazer, actually ended up getting pirated because originally they were part of a deal with Atari. Because Atari did the funding, and Atari backed out of most of that once the crash happened and Jack Trammell took over the company, etc., etc. But during the period where these games were still being considered by Atari, they sent Atari people, you know, copies of them on discs, as you would when you're giving your progress updates on what you're doing. And on the Atari end, the games leaked. You know, I think one of the videos... The Factorless video that I linked, the guy actually brings that up, that the game was under a different name and pirated a lot and was released on a lot of BBSs, and he originally played it as the pirated version. Exactly, and a lot of people did that because the pirated versions even got out there before the official versions did. So that was the experience of a lot of people. So when Tim Schafer talked about how much he loved Ball Blaster, that was the name of the pirated version of Ball Blazer. Oops. (laughs) So he goes in and does this interview and he's like, uh, I pirated your games. (laughs) But I mean, I doubt they really cared that much. I mean, Tim Schaefer, when he tells the story, makes it all dramatic and whatnot. And I'm sure there was a little bit of like, well, that's not great in the back of his head. But they weren't going to deny him a job just because he pirated one of their games. I mean, lots of people pirated it. (laughs) So just showing this creativity again. He was so mortified by that because David Fox pointed it out. He was like, oh, yeah, I think that was only the name of the pirated version. (laughs) And I wonder if he had this like deer in in, uh, headlights look on his face for a moment. You can sort of see that. (laughs) Yeah. So in order to try to regain lost ground, he sent in his resume as an adventure game. You can find this online. It's something we can post in the show notes. It's in a few different places. He actually submitted his resume as a little adventure game with pictures and dialogue about how he heard about the job and how he applied for the job and why he was good for the job. And he got hired. His very first job was doing QA on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because that was coming down the pipe. And then after that, 
he was part of this scum university that I just talked about. And then he was made one of the associate designers or dialogue writers or whatever you want to call it on Monkey Island. So was Dave Grossman. Dave Grossman came to the company in a similar way. I don't have as much to say about his background, but he was a programmer that liked this stuff and had some creative talent alongside his programming talent. And so he joined at about the same time and went through Scum University as well and then joined on Monkey Island. So Dave Grossman and Tim Schaefer would be two of the guys that really led the company going forward in what they were doing in adventure games. And They got their start here on Monkey Island, and then the band got together again to do Secret of Monkey Island 2, and then after that, Ron Gilbert left after Monkey Island 2. We didn't talk about Monkey Island 2 last time. There's not really much to say about it this time. I mean, it's a sequel to Monkey Island, and it came out about a year after the first one. The emphasis was on making it bigger and bolder. I would say that it's somewhat imperfect in some of that. Some of the puzzles are a little more arbitrary, a little more difficult to puzzle out in ways that are kind of, uh, I don't know. I prefer the first one. Some people prefer the second one because the second one is bigger and bolder and has more puzzles. So your mileage will vary on which one's the better game, but definitely both of them were good games. Both of them had the same core of these three guys doing them, and both of them did very well for the company. But then Ron Gilbert left, as I said, and so going into 1992, Monkey Island was 90, Monkey Island 2, 1991. So going into 1992, there were going to be kind of different people taking the lead. And in 92, the big Lucas game that came out was a new Indiana Jones game, Fate of Atlantis. I don't recall a movie about that. No, but it... Would have made a better movie than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. (laughs) Of course, we talked briefly last time about how there was an Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade adventure game. That was one of the very early scum games following Maniac Mansion. The problem with that game, the real problem with that game, was it was really based on the movie. Like, really, really based on the movie. That didn't make for a good adventure game, because if you saw the movie and really... If you're playing an Indiana Jones adventure game, why the heck haven't you seen the movie? You're a very special case. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's nothing to do there. You know, it's like everything, you kind of know how it goes generally already, and, and there's not much to it. So the game sold well because it was Indiana Jones, but there wasn't much interesting to that. But Fate of Atlantis is a truly special game, really one of the only products outside of the movies to ever really capture Indiana Jones and the Indiana Jones milieu in a brilliant and wonderful way. The reason for that is quite simple. It was actually created by a filmmaker. Really? Yes. And a friend of George Lucas to boot. Well then, if we got a filmmaker and someone who knows the big man himself, how could we lose? (laughs) It was created by a gentleman by the name of Hal Barwood. Hal Barwood was part of the same up-and-coming group of young filmmakers as Lucas and Spielberg and De Palma and John Milius and this whole cohort of people that kind of came up together through film school and through their early movies and all of this. He had known George Lucas since the mid-1960s. They were students together at 
USC Film School. Barwood didn't reach the same heights as some of these people, but he was a successful writer. His first script that he collaborated on with another guy, Matthew Robbins, was actually sold to uh, Steven Spielberg and became Steven Spielberg's first feature film, The Sugarland Express, which is not considered one of his great films or anything, but it was one of the films that helped launch Spielberg's film career. Then he did an uncredited rewrite on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that was a big deal for Spielberg. We look back on it now, and I think it's fair to say it's considered one of his more not minor, minor movies, but next to Indiana Jones and Schindler's List and Jurassic Park and E.T., it feels small today, but you have to remember this was still very early in his career. This was pre-Indiana Jones, so he did Jaws, and then he did Close Encounters, and so Close Encounters was a pretty big deal at the time, and he did a rewrite of that, so he's up-and-coming screenwriter, But then he tried to break into directing, be a writer-director, and that went less well for them. I say them because Robbins is with him on this. The big film that he did, where he was in charge of all aspects of producing it, was the film Dragon Slayer, which I presume you're familiar with. I've seen a lot of different movies over the years, but off the title, I don't recall it. Yeah. It was a fantasy epic. It kind of bombed. I mean, I guess it's kind of a cult classic now. It was kind of buried. So, I mean, the way Barwood puts it, and of course, he's biased because, you know, it was his movie. But, I mean, the way he puts it is it was at Paramount and Raiders of the Lost Ark was at Paramount. Fantasy didn't have a great reputation back then. And Paramount figured that Raiders was going to be the winner and Dragon Slayer was not going to be anything compared to Raiders. And so, as he tells it, they didn't really market it. They kind of buried it and put all their attention on Raiders. And so it didn't have much publicity. Then it just kind of tanked. So that didn't completely end his budding career. Uh, He got a few more chances after that. But that was basically it for Barwood as a filmmaker. Now, Robbins went on to kind of rescue himself because Robbins, his collaborator, actually went on to write the movie Batteries Not Included, which I know you're familiar with. Oh, yes. That one I do remember (laughs) off the title. (laughs) And so that was Barwood's collaborator, Robbins, that uh, wrote that. But Barwood kind of fell off. But the thing about Barwood is he was also fascinated by computers. During the making of Dragon Slayer... He started to learn programming by playing around with an HP programmable calculator. And he started becoming a tinkerer on Apple II. So he kind of became a hobbyist amateur programmer during the same period of time that he was trying to do his film career. And he he had no desire at that time to turn towards computers as his primary vocation. But it was something he was doing. So when the whole film thing fell apart, it's like... Well, I know George Lucas. I like computers. Maybe I can talk to these people at Lucasfilm Games and be like, I know George Lucas. I like computers. I write screenplays. Hire me. Maybe we can do something together. Like make another Indiana Jones movie game thing. Yeah, I mean, that's what it ended up being, of course. So they wanted to do a follow-up to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade just because the game was successful. But, of course, there was no 
movie on the horizon. So they decided that they'd give Barwood a crack at this. He knew George and he knew Stephen. He kind of got those people because he knew them well. And he had a screenwriting background. He understood Indiana Jones and he understood that the thing that a great Indiana Jones movie needs is a great MacGuffin. There have been four Indiana Jones movies. Two of them are considered classics. One of them is considered weird, but kind of okay. And one of them is considered, let's not talk about it. And if you look at those four movies, the two that are classics, Raiders and Last Crusade, they have fantastic MacGuffins, Ark of the Covenant, Holy Grail. I mean, those are great archaeological lost ancient objects to drive an Indiana Jones game. Temple of Doom had these chakra stones, which for a Western audience, which is, of course, the audience that the Indiana Jones movies are are geared towards, that's not going to resonate as well because a Western audience just doesn't know Hindu mythology and sacred Hindu artifacts and thuggy cults and all of that. Fun fact, uh, you know, side note, did you know that the word thug actually comes from India? I did not know that. Yeah, they were the thuggies. The antagonist in Temple of Doom is a real cult, a real cult that existed. Obviously, it's all embellished and magic and, you know, they weren't ripping people's hearts out while they're still living kind of thing. But there was a real cult in India called the thuggy cult. So the shortening of that thug comes from thuggy, a member of this kind of nasty cult, death cult. So fun side note. And somehow that migrated over into the United States as the slang term for someone who's going to mug you. That thug, he's going to go beat the crap out of me. Right. Well, you know, via Britain, because, of course, the British controlled India, you know. So it's all the British's fault for making (laughs) up this slang and then bring it over to the United States. Exactly. So uh, that's a digression. But, I mean, we never do those, right? (laughs) Us digress. (laughs) Have you heard about the wonders of Diet Coke? <laughs> oh God, we'll be here all night. <laughs> so next time on Lucas Arts Part Three, we'll finally expound on Diet Coke with lime. No, <laughs> so <laughs> if anyone doesn't know, I have a prolific love for Diet Coke. <laughs> yes. So the Chakra Stone's kind of a meh from a Western perspective kind of thing, and it's a movie that you know is a little more meh than, of course, the Crystal Skulls. There were a lot of problems with Crystal Skull. It wasn't just the MacGuffin. There were a lot of other problems, but the MacGuffin didn't help because, again, it wasn't a compelling one. They're looking to do this new movie, and Barwood understands that there has to be a great MacGuffin, and there had actually been a fourth Indiana Jones movie script written at this time that never ended up being filmed. It was written by Chris Columbus, famous for writing The Gremlins and The Goonies, and of course he later directed Home Alone and Harry Potter and all this. So a good pedigree right there. Right. The thought was, well, you should turn this script into the next Indiana Jones game. I mean, we don't have a movie, but this was a script for a movie, and that's the next best thing. It didn't have a good MacGuffin. It took place in Africa, and he's going to Africa to pursue Chinese artifacts. It's just not something that resonates. So. Barwood and Noah Falstein, who we mentioned last time and who was kind of the technical lead on this alongside Hal, decided, no, 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 we got to do better than this. And so they went to the library, the famous library, the same one that inspired the look of the library in Maniac Mansion. They went to the library at Skywalker Ranch, pulled out a big book of Earth's greatest mysteries, and boom, there it was, Atlantis. 
they saw the talk about how Plato had written about Atlantis, which is true. I mean, that's incorporated into the game, and it's true he really did write about it some. They pulled out the supposed design of it with concentric rings, which are like, okay, this is a space we can do something in, and or a calcum, the legendary metal, and it's just like, well, there's something, and it's like, it just clicked. It's like, this is it. Let's do Atlantis. And then Barwood came up with the idea of, well, Plato did dialogues. What if he had a lost dialogue that really went into detail about Atlantis? And then we can pull in some of the crazy conspiracy theories that people have had over the years. And it just makes sense as something the Nazis would be going after. And it's just, here we are. We've got an Indiana Jones game, a plot for an Indiana Jones game. It really just mushroomed from there. And so you got something with a compelling MacGuffin and a compelling hook, and you had a good screenwriter that really kind of understood what made Indiana Jones Indiana Jones. I mean, the game they came up with was just a delight. Again, it's Indiana Jones, so there is some death in it. An Indiana Jones game isn't going to strictly follow the Ron Gilbert model, because as we said last time, Indiana Jones in Mortal Peril and Indiana Jones just narrowly avoiding Mortal Peril is a necessary part of what makes Indy Indy. And so you have to include that. But still, they didn't make arbitrary deaths. They didn't make it required that you died in order to succeed. You did not have to make sure to remove the bobby pin from the dinner. (laughs) Yes. Because you ate the dinner and then you died because of the bobby pin getting stuck in your throat. You need to remove that bobby pin in order to unlock the lock on the airplane in order to jump out with the parachute. Because Mm -hmm. reasons. (laughs) Bonus point if you can guess which game I've been watching. So they did this game, and the animation was another step up because they did rotoscoping. It was the first time that LucasArts did rotoscoping for a game. They did branching paths to increase the replayability a bit. They had three different ways through the game, one of which was more action-oriented, which, you know, didn't work all that great because doing action in in Scum is kind of awkward. But they had that, and then they had the Indy goes through solo, and then Indy stays partnered with Sophia Hapgood, uh, his companion for the whole game. And that was, you know, another thing. I mean, they came up with a love interest for him, which is something that a good Indiana Jones story also kind of needs is someone that he's standing toe-to-toe with, with all that sexual chemistry. It just had all the elements of a great Indiana Jones movie. It had a good screenwriter leading the design or co-leading the design with Noah Falstein. It just kind of worked, and it was a massive hit. So that's kind of an outlier in the output, just because it wasn't, I mean, it had some humor in it, because there's always humor in Indiana Jones, but it wasn't primarily a humorous game, it wasn't a wacky game, and it wasn't done by one of the, like, traditional guys that were doing all the games there, even though Noah is certainly one of those people, uh, Hal Barwood wasn't. He did go on to do some other Indiana Jones games for the company later, but that was in the post-adventure game days, so it just wasn't quite the same. But this was definitely a magical moment, and they had the good animation. By this time, 256 color VGA graphics were becoming kind of standard, so they could do beautiful for the time pixel art, and it just gelled. It became like a million seller, which is just uh, phenomenal for a game of this type. So that's Fate of Atlantis. That's 1992. As we're getting into 1993, then, there are a couple of different things going on. So 
they tried to get more and more ambitious about the number of games they were doing as time went on, and they're hiring more people. So by 1993, they have a few different things going on. They decide that they want to do a sequel to Maniac Mansion. So they have that going on. And Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer are being given co-lead responsibilities on that because they've kind of proven themselves apprenticing under Ron. Now Ron's gone. They're going to take that mantle forward. There's also an artist working at the company named Steve Purcell that had a couple of wacky characters that he had created many years ago in an underground independent comic, and they wanted to explore that as well. So there's a game going on about that. And then there's this idea that Steven Spielberg had for his television anthology series, Amazing Stories, that he really wanted to do, but decided it would be too expensive to film because it would be kind of this mystery, horror, adventure thing going on another planet. So there's kind of that thing going on as well. They decide that they're spreading themselves too thin. And so they end up setting aside the Steven Spielberg Amazing Stories plot. Noah Falstein was kind of working on that, and they back off of it. This is The Dig, which will ultimately finally come out, and we'll talk about it a little more later in the episode. But other than that, the other two games then went on, and they kind of pulled staff off of The Dig and put them in into these other projects so that they could get more of the attention they needed. The first is the Maniac Mansion sequel, Day of the Tentacle. Day of the Tentacle is in some ways kind of just the perfect distillation of this whole LucasArts adventure thing. The magnum opus? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's strictly my favorite. I like some Monkey Island stuff a lot, too. But it just feels like this is a company that it's at the height of its powers. And so you had Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer who'd cut their teeth on Monkey Island. And now they're returning to this world of Maniac Mansion, but they're returning to it having learned more about puzzle design, having learned more about avoiding all of these bad things like zombie states. So you don't have all of the problems with the dead ends and potential zombie states and all of that that existed in the original Maniac Mansion. So you have better design like that. And they decide to take their lead from Looney Tunes, from Chuck Jones, particularly the ones directed by Chuck Jones. To make it basically this zany cartoon, this zany Looney Tune, you know, eyes popping out of heads, and uh, pratfalls, and hard hits, people getting whacked by stuff, and there's even a, a Pepe Le Pew kind of homage where you have to take a black cat and get a white stripe along its back so that you can let it loose as a skunk. There's all of this kind of Looney Tunes inspired stuff. The animation style really lends itself to that. The animation on it is just gorgeous. They decide to pair back characters, and they only keep one character, actually, from the original game, Bernard, who was one of the characters you could choose. They knew they didn't want to go the multiple ways through route again, but they did at least want to keep the idea that you had a group of multiple people that were going in together, and then you would have to control all of them in order to get through the whole game. They were originally going to have five. They decided five was too complicated. They whittled it down to three. But to uh, make it more interesting, of course, they came up with this idea of having the game take place in the past, the present, and the future, and having the characters separate, one in each era, 
until the very end of the game, and being able to pass items between each other. You know, again, because this is just taking very silly riffs on everything, they uh, decided to do a riff on the TARDIS, the Doctor Who vehicle, but instead of having a time-traveling police box, you had a time-traveling porta potty called the Chronojohn. And then they could pass items back and forth to each other by flushing them through time using the Chronojohn. So just, you know, funny like that. I mean, some of the humor's a little more toilety like that, but some of the humor's also more highbrow, just kind of all mixed together with the zany Looney Tunes. You can just kind of see, okay, this feels like what an adventure game should be. It's got puzzles that are clever, but not overly obscure. It's got interesting characters, funny dialogue, great animation. And of course, it's got that scum engine powering it all. So it's all point and click for everything you do. And wonderful voice acting. And wonderful voice acting. Because the other thing, of course, that's going on at this time is that voice acting CD-ROM is coming in. And so they did create a version that was on floppy disk that only had voices in like the opening cutscene or something like that. But they also did a CD-ROM version at this point, which was fully voiced. The voices were just so well done. I mean, it's just such a great game. You can tell I like this one. You know, the other thing that's going on at this time, and this is something that, uh, this is how I experienced the game, actually, is Lucasfilm, LucasArts, made a deal with Mindscape. Mindscape had a CD-ROM capability. They kind of got into the whole multimedia thing. So LucasArts partnered with Mindscape to do the CD-ROM stuff, to, you know, release it on CD-ROM. And then Mindscape was able to go out and do bundling because this is the period when the multimedia machines are becoming the big thing. That's the big buzzword, multimedia PC. We've talked about this before in previous episodes. You have systems being sold with built-in CD-ROMs. You also have CD-ROMs being sold separately to put in your computers. Everyone's talking about how big and important CD-ROMs going to be. It's the future. You can listen to stuff, watch stuff. Turns out, as we've said before, you needed the internet to actually make this work. But people were hoping that multimedia would be the internet without the internet. You know, you just have huge amounts of data on a CD-ROM that you can work your way through in the same way that we work through hyperlinks and embedded videos on the internet. But uh, anyway, these LucasArts games at this time, these LucasArts adventures like Fate of Atlantis and Day of the Tentacle, were getting bundled like mad with new multimedia PCs and new CD-ROM drives. And Mindscape was the company that was getting them in there. So that's actually was my introduction to Day of the Tentacle and Fate of Atlantis both. Fate of Atlantis was part of a bundle when my friend John Lewis, when his family got a CD-ROM drive for their existing computer. And then Day of the Tentacle was part of a bundle when my family upgraded our computer to a Pentium machine. So sort of taking that missed approach to things where... Let's bundle this software with the hardware, and people are going to buy one or the other for that reason. Exactly. And so I think uh, the reach of the LucasArts adventure game, and by this time, after reorganizations, we are really talking about LucasArts now, not Lucasfilm Games. We'll get into the details of that when we finally do a Lucasfilm Games episode someday. Because of that, I think the LucasArts games started to get even a greater reach in this time period through the power of bundling. Day of the Tentacle and Fate of Atlantis were two of the vanguards in this effort, and so these were two of the vanguards in showing people, look at the brilliant adventure games coming out of this company. 
The other game of the year, like I said, was a quirky game based on a couple of quirky comic characters named Sam and Max, the freelance police. The originator of these characters, not the designer of the game, but the originator of these characters was a guy named Steve Purcell. Purcell had been drawing Sam and Max for literally years and years. He came up with them when he was a child in San Francisco. Then he went to the California College of Arts and Crafts, and he started drawing them in the student newspaper, just doing little funny strips with them. Then he went on to an art career. You know, he didn't go to LucasArts right away. He was doing freelance art. He was doing computer game boxes. He did some Marvel comics. Eventually, he fell in with another friend who was getting into the indie comic scene and was publishing his own series of comics and discovered that these Sam and Max characters that uh, Purcell, quite frankly, hadn't used for several years, not since college, but, you know, they got to talking, he learned about them and whatnot, and they discovered they had similar sensibilities. So this guy's like, well, I'm doing these comic books, and Sam and Max just seems right up the alley of what we do, so why don't we put a comic together? So in 1987, they started uh, this comic, Sam and Max Freelance Police. It's kind of a funny group. You have Sam, a dog that is just kind of a stereotypical gruff P.I., except he also takes things very literally and is, you know, a little slow, but a little slow in a funny way. I don't mean that he's like mentally challenged, but just that he's slow to catch on to things. He maybe doesn't have a big fancy vocabulary and he kind of plays the straight man in the duo. And then you have Max, who's literally just a psychotic rabbit. I mean, psychotic. (laughs) Literally psychotic. (laughs) And they play off of each other really well. And, you know, they're just funny. The humor's a little twisted, but also a little clever, a little literary as well. It's one of these weird things that manages to be both highbrow and lowbrow at the same time, which is a very, very hard trick to pull off. This is something, you know, he's doing on the side. He's still having to do other jobs. And so he ends up working for LucasArts and he uh, draws some box art. He actually drew the box art, I should say, for Zach McCracken, which we talked about. And then he became a full-time artist doing both box art and in-game art. He worked on Last Crusade. He worked on Loom. He worked on the Monkey Island games. And he worked on Scum University. As I told you at the top here, part of Scum University is that when these budding young programmers and artists were put through the program, they would see a demonstration of a room done up in Scum. You know, you can wiggle this and tweak that and all of this just to see how it worked. Well, it was actually Sam and Max's office is what this test room was. Steve Purcell whipped this together. And so that became one of the focal points of Scum University. And the people going through Scum University loved the characters. And when they were making their own little scum creations in the university, they would actually riff on that and do some stuff featuring Sam and Max. And the characters became very, very popular within the company. And in fact, they appear as little Easter eggs. There's a costume shop in Secret of Monkey Island 2, and two of the costumes hanging on the wall are Sam and Max. Sam and Max appear in the background in Day of the Tentacle. They start showing up in all of these games just because everybody there likes them. He actually starts publishing a Sam and Max comic strip again in the company newsletter, again by popular demand. So these characters are around, and they're coming together, and... 
Purcell at this time was actually pulling out of the company at the time this was going on, ironically. He went back to freelancing. He decided to leave the company. But two of the SCUM University graduates, Sean Clark and Mike Stimmel, took on the reins. They had worked as programmers on some of the games, previous games, and now they were given their first big shot as designers, just like Schaefer and Grossman had been working in a lesser capacity on earlier games and were now given their chance to shine with Day of the Tentacle. They are the ones that actually put together Sam and Max Hit the Road. It was fun because it took an outsized premise. All of these games do that. With Secret of Monkey Island, it was the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and all of this and making that big and bold and funny. It was Looney Tunes with Day of the Tentacle. Well, here it was just kind of making fun of Americana and all those tourist traps. You know, you drive around and there's the world's biggest this and the world's most amazing that. So Sam and Max Hits the Road is kind of in this pastiche world where you have the world's largest ball of twine, for instance, is one of the sites. You know, just making fun of American kitsch and American tourist traps, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, you've got this great character combination of the straight man, Sam, and the psychotic Max. Also, there's a little bit of a Looney Tunes sensibility in it as well, especially with the idea that you really control Sam. Max doesn't only follow you around, but Max is also a clickable object using the scum interface. So you can abuse Max in various ways, some of which help solve puzzles and some of which are just for fun. And so it's wacky and it's zany. And again, it's got that great animation style. It's got the voice acting. You know, it's it's just wonderful. Again, I mean, that's why I keep saying over and over is how wonderful these games are, but they really are. And if we're going to tie this all together, it really does come back to this idea that they went out and specifically looked for people that had both good design sensibilities and good programming sensibilities. They brought them in. They gave them an education within the company and within the scum system. Then they put them on the games of other people to get their feet wet, to really learn how it works, to contribute without having the pressure of the full game riding on them. And then once that was done, once they'd been on a couple of games, they pushed them out into the world and let them take all of that they had learned and do their own kind of wacky adventures. So you got Grossman and Schaefer on Day of the Tentacle. You got Clark and Stemmel on Sam and Max. You know, this is really the high point of the company. It's funny, it's smart, it's witty. Sam and Max even kind of lampoons the idea in adventure games that you need a pencil to solve a puzzle, and if you or I needed a pencil, we'd just go down to the store and buy one for 50 cents. But no, in an adventure game, you have to get this exact pencil that's being held by this exact guy, because apparently there's no other pencil anywhere in the world. They kind of make fun of that and some of the kind of point-and-click kind of tropes. So it becomes self-referential in that way. And just kind of that combination of zany animation, witty dialogue, good voice acting, and creative talent that is nurtured within the company is really what makes this work. Really, if you haven't been sold on it yet, I will certainly have links to videos of long playthroughs through these games. If you got the time, just... Sit down with a bowl of popcorn and just watch a few of these things because really they're entertainment pieces unto themselves, especially just the voice acting, the funny little moments and stuff. They're just really enjoyable. 
Absolutely. But, of course, it unfortunately just wasn't meant to last. I personally, and an individual's mileage will vary just depending on what games they like, but I would personally say that 1993 was kind of the high watermark. I mean, consistently, from Secret of Monkey Island in 1990 to these games in 1993, you just had a series of absolute winners that were right at the top of their field. It feels like after 1993 was the beginning of the long, well, not even very long, but the beginning of the decline. Which isn't to say that some of the games after that weren't also good, but they were running up against some real problems. Just in the larger industry. This was a period of great transition. The multimedia thing was really transforming games. And it was transforming games in the way that they had to be more expensive because you needed more art and higher quality art and voice acting and audio and all of this. And it also changed them because it was starting to open up PC gaming to a wider audience than had ever been part of it before. And genres were shifting very rapidly to accommodate the tastes of the new people coming in. I mean, this is why in this time period you get, for instance, the primacy of the first-person shooter. Because before we had PCs up to this level of sophistication... You really couldn't do a fast action game on PC. Well, Doom comes along, and obviously before that, Wolfenstein and a little bit of the precursor, but especially Doom comes along, and you can do that now. And so you're getting a bigger audience in, and they want the fast action. On the adventure game side, you're seeing a broadening of the adventure game through a simplification of the adventure game, and Myst is the poster child here. Say what you will about Myst, whether you like it or not, it's a controversial game in some circles, but the Miller brothers really wanted, and they've said this in their own words, an interface so simple that their grandmother could play it. So they went even simpler than the Scum Engine. There is no list of verbs. There is no menu at all, really. There is the mouse pointer. And there are objects on the screen that are interactive. And when you click on them with the mouse pointer, stuff happens. But it's all happening right there in the environment, right there on the screen. You're even getting rid of that abstraction layer of the scum engine and its list of verbs. And the inventory. Exactly, and the inventory. Which is actually, I would say, a decrement because there's certain puzzles in Myst that you practically have to sit down and read, take notes, and have a pad of paper with you and your own pencil and scratch things out if you're going to solve any of these problems. Right, and that's uh, part of the reason why, uh, as I said, it is so controversial in some circles. The genre is changing, and LucasArts is in some ways, I think, having trouble keeping up with that. Kind of a good example of this is Tim Schafer's next game, After Day of the Tentacle, which is Full Throttle. After Day of the Tentacle, Dave Grossman briefly works on a resurrected version of The Dig, which is still kind of puttering around. But then he leaves the company. So now Tim Schaefer is kind of going off on his own after Day of the Tentacle. He had several ideas for games, and there's no doubting that Tim Schaefer is an amazingly imaginative guy. All of his IPs that he developed have been incredibly imaginative. Where Tim Schaefer sometimes falls down is in the execution of it. Psychonauts is such a great witty game and such a great brilliant idea, but 
he decided to make a platform game and he didn't have much experience making a platform game. And so the brilliant world and the brilliant characters and the brilliant dialogue in that case are somewhat let down by the way he chose to do the game. And, you know, he's a creative guy that wants to push his own boundaries and try new things. And that's wonderful. He doesn't want to stay in place, but it led to something like Psychonauts, which is post LucasArts, of course, that was not quite the sum of all of its parts. There was a little bit of that with his output here as well. So he came up with several ideas after doing Day of the Tentacle. And one of those was this kind of biker game. Full throttle. Yeah, exactly. And there were a lot of different influences there. A lot of it was coming from comic books. Mike Mignola, who did Hellboy, there was some vibe from there. Certainly Akira, which features a motorcycle, of course, was part of it. They were kind of pulling from these things to kind of create this sci-fi biker vibe thing, which is definitely an interesting idea, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem was, during this period of technological advance, they were really trying to get involved with 3D. Now, Full Throttle is not a fully 3D game, but it's kind of blending the two. It's creating 3D worlds because they wanted to be able to animate these motorcycles and do really cool things with the motorcycles and even do some action stuff with the motorcycles, bringing action into an adventure game. It turned out that doing that animation just doing all of that 3D work, which no one, not just in the company, but really no one in the computer game industry at this point had had much experience with. It ended up being long, arduous, and expensive. And because of that, they were not able to create all the sequences they wanted to create. They weren't able to polish all the sequences, particularly the action sequences that were already there. It ends up being really, really short. I talked about how Loom was short. Full Throttle was really, really short. You could theoretically get through that game in four hours. That's pretty short. You know, it was because of having to cut content. They weren't going for something that short. But doing that 3D stuff just ugh, couldn't come together. So it's got some interesting ideas. It's got some interesting characters. It's got a lot of that LucasArts charm to it still. And Tim Schafer is a wildly creative guy, and the game was very successful. I mean, very, very successful, because the LucasArts name was gold at this point. They could put out practically anything, and it would sell. But you can kind of see that they're struggling in this new multimedia world. They're struggling in this new 3D world. They're struggling in this world where some real-time components and some action are kind of expected next to the cerebral stuff. So you can kind of see that things are starting to turn. In the same year, The Dig finally comes out. It goes through multiple iterations. It had four project leaders. The original version that we briefly talked about a second ago was going to be this kind of amazing sci-fi experience that blended adventure games and action games and RPGs and all of these genres. Noah Falstein was lead on that. Then it got shelved because it was very ambitious and the company was spread thin and they thought, we can't handle all this. It was resurrected a year or so later with Brian Moriarty, fresh off of Loom, becoming the lead on the game. It was refocused during this time period into a more traditional adventure game, 
with a sci-fi mystery passing a series of, of tests left by an alien species on a far-off planet. According to the lead artist on the game, he felt that Brian Moriarty, who, as I said before, is a very thoughtful designer and is very interested in setting and tone and philosophical ruminations and all sorts of stuff that's very great to do in theory, but he got kind of caught up in the idea that this was Spielberg, the Spielberg who had pitched the idea. And, you know, Spielberg was a fan of video games. You know, he was a big gamer himself, and so when there were games being made based on his concepts, he kept an eye on them. Now, was he intimately involved with the dig? Absolutely not. When I say keep an eye on it, we're only talking about a couple of meetings. But they did get to have a couple of meetings with Spielberg. The lead artist just feels that Moriarty kind of got caught up in the fact that this was Spielberg, and he needed to really impress Spielberg. And he kind of feels the project got away from them all as a result of that. And then the pressure became very immense. Moriarty actually ended up leaving the company partway through the development of the game. So that was the end of his uh, brief association with LucasArts. So then it was revived one more time by Sean Clark, who we had just talked about in the context of Sam and Max. The game that came out was mostly... Uh, it was mostly Moriarty's vision, just simplified slightly and refocused and developed a little further. But by the time it came out, it didn't have that magic. It had too many people that had worked on it. It had changed too many times. The design was overhauled too many times. And what was left was just kind of bland and very meh. So 1995 was kind of challenging for the adventure game side of the company because both Full Throttle and The Dig had problems in their own way. Now you're getting into a period of time when games are getting more and more complex and budgets are getting bigger and, as I said, more is expected out of games and it's just becoming harder and harder to keep that edge. The next major game they come out with on the adventure game side is another Monkey Island game, A Curse of Monkey Island, in 1997. You know, that one is charming, in my opinion. It's another scum game. It's got very good animation. It really looks like a cartoon. You know, the earlier games, you could tell, were pixel art, even when it was very charming pixel art. This really felt like a cartoon in its animation. Uh, and in fact, Larry Ahern, one of the leads on it, uh, you know, had worked on an artist, I believe, on previous games. So, I mean, you know, you had an artist's sensibility in the design. And it wasn't the sequel that Ron Gilbert would have made. Ron Gilbert actually ended The Secret of Monkey Island on a cliffhanger where uh, Guybrush gets stuck in an amusement park as a child, some kind of voodoo trap <laughs> that LeChuck made for him. Larry and uh, Jonathan Ackley, who were the leads on this, decided to ditch that and go their own way. Ron Gilbert was gone. Nobody had any idea what Ron Gilbert would have done. Gilbert afterwards has said, you know, well, I wouldn't have done that. It actually ends up with Guybrush and Elaine getting together, which Ron Gilbert said he would never, ever do. So we didn't really talk about the characters. But Guybrush Threepwood is kind of this hopeless guy that wants to be a mighty pirate, even though he really doesn't have any skills. He's kind of goofy. In the first game, he meets Elaine Marley, the governor of one of the islands there in the Caribbean, and she's a strong, independent woman type, and Guybrush falls hard, and, you know, there's this kind of will-they-or-won't-they kind of tension between them in both the first and the second game. 
Then in the third game, they decide to get them together and they end up becoming a couple, which is something that Ron Gilbert said he'd never do because the whole point is that Elaine really is too good for Guybrush and there's a lot to mine in the will they or won't they chemistry there, but they're never really meant to get together. Some people look on Curse of Monkey Island a little bit poorly only because it's it's not, in a way, the true sequel <laughs> in the sense that Ron Gilbert didn't have anything to do with it. It is, in my opinion, a charming game, and I certainly enjoyed it, and it had some memorable characters as well. That game was fairly successful, but that was really the last one. The whole thing falls apart in 1998 with what is actually a very brilliant game, but a game that just was never going to work because of the way the market had changed. And what game is that? And that game, of course, is Grim Fandango. But I loved Grim Fandango. Absolutely, and you should love it, because it's a great game. It's a wonderful game. It has this wonderful Day of the Dead mythology in it. It has fantastic voice acting, great humor, entertaining and challenging puzzles, wonderful diverse areas, an overarching plot that's very engaging. It's just a wonderful, fantastic game. And it sold nothing. Absolute nothing. It was a humongous, humongous flop. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the game, because it really is very charming. And once again, it is out of that brilliant mind of Tim Schafer, because even if sometimes his game design falls down, there's no questioning that this guy is... Very, very wildly creative, imaginative, and great at coming up with worlds. It's fantastic to kind of see how his process went. So this was another game that he pitched at the same time that he pitched Full Throttle. He came up with the idea of a Day of the Dead game. The powers that be figured that Grim Fandango might be kind of niche, Full Throttle might have more appeal. So when he gave them the choices, they were like, go make Full Throttle. But then because Full Throttle was a hit, because even though I said it had some problems, which is true, it really did sell well, he was basically able to have his pick of what he wanted to do after that. And so he was able to then make his Day of the Dead game. How did this all kind of happen? It started all the way back when he was at the University of California at Berkeley, when he was still a student. He became very into folklore and anthropology when he was a student, and he studied all of this stuff. He learned about some of these traditions, like the Day of the Dead and the fact that the soul goes on a journey through the afterlife for several years, and he thought that would be an interesting idea for a game. So then he's thinking... Well, you know, if we're doing a Day of the Dead thing, who would you want to play? Well, I mean, the interesting character here is that Grim Reaper that's guiding you into the afterlife and on this extended journey. And, of course, the fact that it's a four-year journey, it makes it, you can break it into chapters, and the chapters are great for adventure games. You know, this is all coming together. But then he's thinking, you know, if the Grim Reaper is really just coming and grabbing you when you die and then taking you on this long journey to the afterlife... He's really not this big, imposing character. He's not Death from Terry Pratchett. He's not Grim Reaper from Castlevania, all big skulls and scythes. He's really just a taxi driver. He's really just a travel agent. You know, he's really just getting you from point A to point B, which is not glamorous and is not imposing or impressive. 
he just liked this idea that, you know, a Grim Reaper's got this scythe and the hood and everything and looks really great and impressive. But at the end of the day, he's really just a working stiff. So he takes it and runs with it. Yeah. And so he takes that. And then mixed in with this is the other part of Mexican folklore. There's this idea that when you bury someone, you bury them with two bags of coins. One is out in the open, just on top of their body, and the other one is hidden someplace. So that if spirits, vengeful spirits, steal or come to steal the money, they'll get the stuff that's obvious and they'll miss the stuff that's hidden. So that all gave him this idea of the afterlife being crime-ridden. And so that's why he was like, what if I take the Day of the Dead and these Aztec and Mexican motifs and mix them with film noir? It's such a bizarre combination, but it works. It works surprisingly well. The entire conceit is that Manny, who's the main character here that you play, is a travel agent. What he does is he assesses your soul, and based off of how you were in life, you can either get this great ticket to go right to the afterlife really quickly, a ride on the number nine train or whatever it was, some sort of train that you get on, you uh, get something else in order to help you get across the land of the dead. If you're really bad, you can get something like a walking staff with a compass on it. If you're halfway decent, <laughs> you get motorcycle maybe or a car or something else like that. Or maybe some tickets and stuff to try and get to that train. It's all based on that. And then he stumbles across a conspiracy to defraud souls who were really, really good and steal their train tickets. That will get them through the afterlife really quickly. And he's like, that's not right. And so he joins the resistance and starts uncovering this mystery and starts his own journey across the land of the dead. And you find things like the dead can die again, apparently. You've got all these zany, wacky characters that are sort of like spirits. And he befriends one of those spirits. He tricks out his car and all sorts of crazy things. It really is an enjoyable game, yep. and I will certainly make sure to link Absolutely. a playthrough or two in the show notes. If you don't even want to play it, just watch a little bit of this, and it's pretty entertaining. Exactly, and you know, uh, drew a lot from film noir and from noir writers. There's a lot of Chandler and Dashiell Hamnett, Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, Third Man, all like directly represented. Uh, even the main villain is based on a character in Casablanca. I mean, he brings in all of these elements. The whole skeleton thing and the fact that everyone ends up being these skeletons is as much as anything because this game was going to have to be 3D because we're at a stage here where the PC market is a 3D market. The audience just doesn't want 2D games anymore. Now, that isn't to say that there's no audience for 2D games. I mean, 2D games in the indie scene are now still being made today, but you have to understand the economics of the industry. At this period of time, because the computers were becoming more and more capable and the graphical capabilities were more and more capable, the audio capabilities were more and more capable, people demanded that a AAA game have a certain level of quality to it. Whether it's 2D, whether it's 3D, doesn't matter. Certain level of quality. That certain level of quality costs lots of money because you're talking about large teams, you're talking about lots of artists, lots of animators, lots of programmers. It's expensive to make a game to that level of quality. Because it's so expensive, the only way to make this work is for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to buy your game. 
So only something that has mainstream appeal, whatever that means, is going to work for you now. The audience for adventure games probably remained pretty constant throughout the 1990s. But the problem is, is that audience remained relatively flat while the audiences for other genres were growing. And because of the increased cost of making these games, you needed more people to play them to make the whole thing economically viable. It's not that people stopped playing adventure games overnight, because that didn't happen. What happened is the number of people playing adventure games didn't grow, but the cost of making an adventure game grew. In short, the cost kept going up and the amount of people playing the game did not increase to match the amount of costs that were going up. So if you still have the same 500,000 people playing your game when it costs you 1 million, 2 million, 3 million in order to produce the game, that's not a sustainable business model. Exactly. And, you know, in, in the case of Grim Fandango, the budget was 3 million. <laughs> But it had to be 3D because the only way you could hope to be successful was to attract a mainstream audience. And at this point, a mainstream audience wanted a 3D game. I know it's a little hard to imagine with all the indie games out there. Back in the 90s, if I was going to spend $50, $60, $70 on a video game, I'm going to want the best bang for my dollar. So I might have just spent... $200 on a new video card, I want to take full advantage of that. I'm going to definitely want to take advantage of this 3D card that I just bought and use my $60 to buy a video game that's going to really wow me. (laughs) I'm certainly not going to take that same $60 and buy a 2D cartoon. Right. You have to remember that retail shelf space is a valuable commodity. Oh, yeah. There was no steam. Right, and there was only a limited amount of it. So is Mr. Retailer going to order the game that's going to sell 500,000 copies or 100,000 copies even, or the game that's going to sell 3 million copies? Which game is Mr. Retailer going to order to put on his shelf? That's the long and short of it right there. It's more the retailer than the actual buying public. Well, I mean, it's, it's both, right? They both feed off of each other. Right. The retailer right. has the higher control over that to a greater extent is able to influence public opinion because they have that control over it, but they are not 100% in control. Exactly. Because, you know, I mean, a company like LucasArts might have been perfectly happy to be like, okay, you four guys make a simple adventure game. It'll be cheap. If just 100,000 people buy it, it'll make money. We'll make money. Everyone's happy. Well, the problem is, then, if you went to take that game to Mr. Retailer, Mr. Retailer's going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. I've got all of these companies and all of these games that want a space on my shelf. Why am I going to put your game that may sell 100,000 copies on my shelf? I can make a much bigger profit with something else. So you had to keep pushing the technological envelope to show the retailer as much as the public that look at this game. It's got the state-of-the-art graphics, the state-of-the-art sound, everything state-of-the-art. It's really going to sell. And the retail will be like, yeah, 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 that's going to sell. I'll order. I'll order. I'll order. I'll give it shelf space. If they can't run it on their computer, they're going to go over here to my other part of my department and buy that upgraded hard drive, buy that sound card, buy that video card, get a new monitor while they're at it, get a gaming keyboard and mouse, upgrade this, upgrade that. So it drives more money being spent at a retailer because 
They're going to be, well, to play this game, you must have the latest video card. And the latest sound card. Right. And you need to have enough space on your hard drive in order to do this. Failure to do so will lead to sadness. Like me running Diablo on a 486. Yes, I did this. (laughs) Yes, it runs slow. It's molasses. Yes, it's amusing. I'm even amazed that it launched. Right. So a younger person looking at this today would be like, okay, fine, but why didn't they just make them like they always make them? And there's clearly still an audience for this stuff because people still buy this stuff today. And it's like, yes, there was still an audience, but there wasn't a delivery platform to get it to that audience. (laughs) Digital distribution. You don't have Steam. It is only a major retailer. We're talking Walmart, Target, Kmart, maybe Sears. Sort of had GameStop back then. Electronic Boutique, Babbage's. A lot of you younger gamers are probably listening to me and saying, wait, what? I've never heard of these things. <laughs> There's a reason some of these things have gone away. Right. But they all primarily competed with each other in order to get the big name titles. And a lot of these were in malls. And they had really limited shelf space compared to, say, a Walmart, a Target, somewhere else. Right. Even then, they just had a smaller department, an electronics department. They just had like one or two shelves dedicated to video games. Then you had TVs, you had VHSs, your DVDs, console stuff on top of it. And it's all in this one small section. It's not like the delivery platform right. today where I can go to Amazon <laughs> and type in, give me this obscure game that just got released. Fine. It's at my door right. within five days. Fantastic. You couldn't even really exactly. do that with the Sears catalog back then. No, no. Unfortunately, that's just not how it works. And we're kind of really blessed with this modern era where you have things like Steam, you have things like Amazon, you have things with online order entry where even you can still go to a Walmart or Target and some other places and order that stuff online and have it mailed directly to you or delivered to your local store and then pick it up. Right. The distribution it, platform that we have today is leaps and bound fantastically great compared to how it was when Alex and I were kids. I don't know about you, Alex, but I remember when I wanted to get a Hot Wheel that was a prize within my cereal box and we sent away for it. Please expect six to eight weeks for delivery. Six to eight weeks later, I don't even remember that we ordered that thing. Yeah. And you know, I spent some of my childhood in Hawaii. You think it took a long time for something to get, uh, like, Illinois. Try sending in for something when you live in Hawaii. <laughs> Please allow six to eight weeks delivery plus two to three months in transit on the nice slow boat. <laughs> yeah. A bit of a digression was just a long way to say that a game like Grim Fandango had to move to 3D, even though that wasn't necessarily the best move for adventure games, because you had to show you were at the technological cutting edge. But this is one of the areas where Tim Schafer was very clever, because another reason that he kind of glommed on to this whole Day of the Dead motif being perfect for this is 3D at that time was obviously very primitive. And blocky. And blocky, you couldn't do much with expressions and with faces. And you see, the entire LucasArts oeuvre was based on that elasticity of character, was based on the brilliance of animation. Games like Day of the Tentacle and Sam and Max were all about that animation. Curse of Monkey Island as well. All about those vibrant expressions and animations, and you couldn't do that with 3D. So he thought, well, you know, skulls. These Day of the Dead skulls are already highly stylized. 
they're not meant to have full facial features and they're mostly just a big white skull shape. So you don't need a lot of polygons to do that. It's a cylinder. Yeah. Most polygons in a 3D environment, you can do cylinders, cubes, rectangles, triangles, some spheres. A skeleton in a uh, stylized manner is just a bunch of very simple shapes, but because it's a skeleton, it looks really good. Exactly. And you can just kind of put a 2D highly stylized face on that polygon, and it doesn't have to be very detailed. You can get the expression you need out of that because it's already very stylized. That was another clever reason to take this Day of the Dead approach. But of course, it does mean that we're saying farewell to scum. No, don't take scum away from me. Because scum is a 2D engine. So they adapt. Of course, by this time, they're doing a lot of games that aren't adventure games, and they're doing a lot of Star Wars games, and they're doing a lot of first-person Star Wars games. So they have a 3D engine, the Sith engine, that they're using in the later Dark Forces games. So they take that engine, and they adapt it into a new engine called Grime, or Grimmy, or Grimy, if you're being cute about it, because they, uh, they capitalize the E on the end. It's called Grim E, or Grime, because it's the Grim Fandango engine, so Grim, and then a capital E for engine. But again, they're just looking for an excuse, just like with scum. So they create the Grime engine, and it's 3D, but there's still a lot of script base in it, and they actually use Lua for the scripting, which uh, even still today is, is a very common scripting language. Very versatile language. Exactly. So they make this engine with Lua, combine with this uh, Sith engine, and create Grime. The problem is, at this time, 3D is so new that 3D controls haven't really been figured out very well. There's a term from this time period called tank controls. They call them tank controls in part because it feels like moving something big and awkward that doesn't turn very well, like a tank, all over the map. It's clunky, it's awkward, the inventory is much clunkier, there's no more of this verb stuff, we have an inventory, you have to cycle through individual items in your inventory. I mean, the game's still fine, but it's just not as elegant an interface as Scum had been. I think Grim Fandango kind of gets trapped. Because they're trying to appeal to a more high-tech crowd. They're trying to appeal to a crowd that wants 3D. They're trying to appeal to a crowd that wants real-time, which is where the whole market's moving. But it's too obscure and esoteric and not fast and action-y enough to really capture that audience. But at the same time, it's not elegant enough to capture the traditional adventure game audience. So it quite simply gets lost. It doesn't have an audience. <laughs> as brilliant as it, has it is. It an audience now, but yeah. all the people who are going, I want a 3D game that's awesome and full of action and fun and adventure. What's this? Oh, I want an adventure game from LucasArts. I love those people. They go great. What the heck? Yeah. And so it is a shame because it is a very imaginative game. And some of the puzzles are still very good. The characters are wonderful. The humor. The setting is wonderful. The humor is wonderful, but it just doesn't work, and it really bombs. It came out in 1998, came out in October 1998, right before Christmas. In that first Christmas season, it sold a grand total of 58,000, that's thousand, 
617 copies. They didn't even break 100,000. By the year 2000, so two years, well, early 2000, so a year and a half after release. And, you know, games are always hottest in, like, their first six months or so. Mm-hmm. 95,000. So two years later, they still haven't broken 100K. Yep. Over time, it sells more. By the end of its life, it gets into the hundreds of thousands of units. But by then, it doesn't matter anymore. It kind of goes through a revival later on as more people find it and, it, and it finds a voice. But years later, years later, this is a flop. I mean, you can still get it on Ghetto Games, I think, right now. Right. But, I mean, this, this is a flop. This is terrible. This is not acceptable in 1998. No other way to put it. And it already cost LucasArts over $3 million to produce this game. And after two years, they only had less than 100000 sold. Then combine that with Christmas sales in the first year being, what was it? 58,617. Let's just be generous there and say 60,000. Now let's multiply that by the average price of a game, which is $60. They're not making enough money there. No, and, and of course, you know, that's the retail price. Yeah, they don't see that. LucasArts doesn't get the whole retail price. Right, so my rough math there gets me $3,600,000. At least half of that is just going away to retailers and logistics. You're not making back your money. Exactly. That was their last attempt at an original new adventure game IP because they're not going to greenlight another one after that. In 2000, they do another Monkey Island game, Escape from Monkey Island. That, in its own way, I don't know what the sales were, but in its own way was an even worse disaster because Rim Fandango was calibrated to take advantage of the primitive state of 3D, as we said, like with the skulls, you don't need many polygons. Escape from Monkey Island was trying to take a game that in its most recent iteration had been a wonderfully rendered cartoon. So wonderfully rendered that when it came out, Blizzard looked at it, looked at Warcraft Lord of the Clans, their adventure game that they were making, and decided, we can't release this. Curse of Monkey Island is just too good. (laughs) So a truly wonderful 2D animated product with real human characters, with expressive faces, putting it into 2000 era 3D. Blocky, ugly, unexpressive. Tank controls. Tank controls. It's a disaster. I'm sure somebody must have liked it, but as a general rule, anybody who likes the Monkey Island series does not acknowledge that there's a fourth game in the Monkey Island series because it was terrible and it was always going to be terrible because it couldn't translate into that new 3D world. Not at that time. Today, maybe, you know, but not at that time. And they couldn't fall back to the cartoon. Exactly. They had to keep pushing forward technologically. So that's a disaster. They're working on sequels to Full Throttle and Sam and Max as well, because those were both hits for the company back in an earlier time. And so it makes sense to do more. But LucasArts as a whole is going through some trouble in this this time period. It's kind of a tricky time period for the industry as a whole. These adventure games aren't doing well. So they just, you know, in the early 2000s, they, they ax them, they cancel them. They decide that the market realities are adventure games are dead. No one's interested. We're done. And they never, ever make another adventure game again. They 
continue uh, to limp along as a kind of minor publisher, mostly doing Star Wars products. Pretty much almost exclusively Star Wars products. Pretty much. Until Walt Disney buys them and uh, buys Lucasfilm in 2013. And then, of course, the Walt Disney Company did not need LucasArts. They did not need this video game company. And so they shut it down. Bye-bye. Today, adventure games have experienced a bit of a renaissance because, as we said, digital distribution allows for games that would be a niche product in a retail setting to find an audience when you don't have to worry about shelf space. But LucasArts, they were good up to the end on adventure games. I mean, Escape was a mistake, but I mean, Grim Fandango was truly a great game. So, I mean, they still had the mojo. They had the capability potentially to bridge that 2D to 3D period because over time they'd have figured out controls, they'd have figured out interface, polygons would have gotten better, characters would have gotten more expressive. They had the creative talent to kind of bridge that gap, but there was no will in the retail marketplace and there were no sales. So almost as fast as that LucasArts Adventure Legacy rose, it fell very sadly. But we'll always have those perfect uh, half dozen or so games that came out from Maniac Mansion to Grim Fandango. If you have any kind of inkling to experience adventure games, I highly encourage you to pick up some of the remastered games that have been put out either through good old games, Steam, or other venues. I remember in the last episode, I mentioned Leisure Suit Larry, which is an older adult-oriented game. Literally adult-oriented mm-hmm. game. Not for kids. Yeah. There's a reloaded version of that where it was a Kickstarter to completely redo it in a modern, full cartoon graphics, adventure, all this other stuff, voice acting. I watched a playthrough of it, and it was, it was a wonderful experience. It was really, really fun. Even the older games, there's been remakes of Day of the Tentacle. There's been remakes of the mm-hmm. Monkey Island ones. Yeah, one and two, yeah. So a lot of these games that we have talked about, you can play on a modern system, not even go, hey, I don't want to see those pixelated graphics, though personally I enjoy a lot of the pixelated graphics. You can play them on a modern system with modern graphics, with modern renditions of it, and really enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. You know, we we shouldn't really end it on a on a downer note because in this era of Steam and being able to cater to niche audiences and whatnot, the value of these IPs was uh, recognized. LucasArts, while it was still around, put out remastered versions of Monkey Island and Monkey Island 2, where they redid the graphics to be in a, a more modern, vibrant style and not so pixelated. And then even after LucasArts was gone, Tim Schafer was able to work with Sony to get the rights to Grim Fandango away from Disney, and they did a remastered version of Grim Fandango. As you said, Day of the Tentacle has also been done. You know, that legacy lives on, and it was discovered that, no, there really there really is an audience for this stuff once you have a distribution platform that doesn't rely on greedy retailers having to maximize their return on their shelf space. Absolutely. You can check many, many of these games out, and we'll certainly put some stuff in the show notes in that regard. I'll be busy with show notes this episode, just like I was with the last one. Absolutely. We just love these games so much. We we got we got to get involved. We got to get involved in trumpeting them. Yeah, this is this is very dear to our hearts. So, but anyway, that is the legacy of the LucasArts adventure game which burned hot, burned bright and ultimately burned out but is still fondly remembered today. 
All right. You actually have a plan for our next episode, which is a rarity. I do, yes. You don't have to ask me this time and be, be like, uh, 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 of course we cut all that out of the final episode, but that's pretty much what happens. If you ever listen to me edit, you get to enjoy all of that and more. <laughs> Did you know, Jeff, that there are books on video game history? Nah, not like we gave away three of them to three lucky people. Yes, there are books on video game history, and yeah, wouldn't you know, I've actually written one of them. They Create Worlds, the story of the people and company that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, available from the publisher's ERC Press, as well as Amazon.com and other major online retailers. Gotta get that plug in. So, uh, yeah, I've written a book, and uh, it's a book that I personally think... Whatever you may think of the writing style, or should I have gone in detail on that, should I not have, I'm not prepared to say whether it's brilliant or not, but one thing I am prepared to say about it is this book, unlike previous books, goes into greater depth, greater research done, more cross-referencing done, and it creates both a more in-depth and more accurate picture of the video game industry than really anything that's come before it. However... This book still stands on the shoulders of giants. This book still stands on top of the video game history books that came before it. And if some of those books had not inspired my personal journey into video game history, my book would have never been written. Those books still often have a great deal of value and a great deal of interest. I thought we'd just take some time to examine some of the more noteworthy books on a general video game history that have existed out there and kind of uh, critique a little bit and talk about the positives and negatives of these books, uh, respectfully, of course, because they were all huge undertakings and, and nobody came at it with malicious intent. You know, it's, it's wonderful that all these books exist, even the ones that sometimes come up a little short. Kind of respectfully look at the, uh, the highs and lows of these books and kind of see how our understanding of the industry in our history books has evolved over time as, as more and more books have been written. So kind of a historiographical look at video game history, I guess you'd call it, in honor of the fact that, uh, hey, I've written a book too. Yeah, so I imagine some of these books that you'll be bringing up are not just the general history of the video game industry, which your book primarily focuses on, but I imagine some of these are also very minutiae, detail-oriented on certain aspects of it. I'm really looking at Sega, I'm really looking at Nintendo, I'm really looking at this arcade company, that company, so on and so forth. Yeah, well, we'll bring up a couple of those, a couple of the more prominent ones of those as well. We won't get down in the trenches on all of them because there are really quite a few, but some of the more prominent ones, like, say, David Chef's game over on Nintendo, uh, you know, we'll absolutely cover that as well. Expanding on historical books next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. 
Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.